Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. This is another episode of Newsweek's The Debate. So this week we are talking about climate change and global warming. Is it an emergency? Is it not an emergency? Who are we going to hear from today, Batya? We are so thrilled to have James Taylor, the president of the Heartland Institute, and Heather Goldstone, the chief communications officer at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. They're going to be talking about whether global warming is an emergency. We are so thrilled to have them. But before we get to that, this episode is brought to you by Herzog Wine Cellars, our sponsors. You can find the wine at HerzogWine.com. They sent us some wine. I popped open a bottle of their Syrah last weekend on Shabbat for Friday night dinner. And I got to tell you, Josh, I really liked it. It had that kind of pepperiness you're looking for in a Syrah. It was kind of musky and smoky. I just, I really enjoyed it. HerzogWine.com. Check them out. Who knew the perks of podcasting, Bonnie? I think you and I are going to become sommeliers or something like that. Um, but uh, no, uh, we are very grateful to our sponsor, Herzog Wine Cellars. Again, you can check them out at HerzogWine.com. On the other side, when we return, we will have James Taylor and Heather Goldstone debating whether climate change is an emergency or not. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to another episode of Newsweek's The Debate. So this week we have on James Taylor and Heather Goldstone to discuss whether global warming is an emergency. Is it a catastrophe? Uh, what should we do about it? So, um, Body, why don't you kick us off here? Welcome to the debate. We're so thrilled to have you both. So I wanted to start off by kind of nailing down some area of agreement so that we could really pinpoint where the disagreement between you both is. So what I want to do is I want to ask you a series of questions, yes, no questions. I want you each to answer them. There's four of them. And then from there, we'll see if there's any agreement there. And then we'll ask you to sort of expound on your position. All right. So the first question is, do you agree that the global temperature is increasing? Heather. Yes. James. Yes. Do you agree that humans are playing at least some role in that warming? Heather. Absolutely, yes. James. I believe so. Do you agree that we should reduce pollution? James. It's always good to reduce pollution if we do so in a way that uh, passes a cost-benefit analysis. Heather. Uh, I think we urgently need to do so, and I think that's what the science tells us. And the fourth question is, do you agree that the climate is always changing? James. Yes. Heather. Uh, it is always changing, but not at the pace that it is right now. And that's a really important distinction. Okay, great. So thank you so much. I'm so excited to be starting from this position of so much <laughs> agreement between you both. Now we're going to give you a chance to talk about your position and hopefully we'll find the areas exactly of disagreement. So Heather, why don't you kick us off? What is your position? Is global warming an emergency? Yes, it is. Um, and I think that position for me comes uh, from a few different things. First, let's define what an emergency is. Um, it's an urgent situation, potentially life or death, that is actionable. 
Uh, if you have a situation that is an extreme threat and completely inactionable, it's not an emergency, it's just a tragedy. And I think that's a really important distinction when it comes to climate change. This is an actionable emergency, and it's not just me saying that. Uh, in fact, uh, within the past several days, a group of some 14,000 scientists uh, have uh, well, a paper has been published that 14,000 scientists have signed on to um, declaring and redeclaring, in fact, um, that this is a climate emergency, uh, basing that on more than two dozen indicators of planetary health and human activity. Okay, so James, how do you respond to that? You agree that the global temperature is increasing. You agree that humans are playing a role in it. You agree we should reduce pollution. Why isn't this an emergency? Your thoughts? Well, if there's one thing I would like people to take away from this, it's this. For the vast majority of the time that human civilization has existed, temperatures have been significantly warmer than today. It's hard to say we have a climate or global warming emergency when temperatures are unusually cool rather than unusually warm. And by the way, more than 30,000 scientists have signed on to a paper saying that we're not facing a climate emergency. So just to respond to that briefly, I mean, if you look at uh, the extensive science on the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and where we are in terms of our climate, we're actually in a completely unprecedented uh, place, not only in the history of human civilization, but in the full evolution of modern humans. Carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have not been this high in over 800,000 years. Uh, Humans have been around for, for somewhere around uh, modern humans, as we know them, for a little bit less than half of that. And especially if you look at the last 10,000 years since the evolution of agriculture, the entire development of civilization, that has all taken place in a time of really remarkable, especially given your earlier question about is climate always changing, a really remarkable period of climate stability. And it's actually that stability that has made it possible for civilization to develop, for the societies um, that we know to develop. And so the fact that we are now so far outside of the bounds of anything that we've seen in the course of civilization or human evolution is, uh, is yeah, it is an emergency. It's, it's a cause for huge concern. And James, how do you respond to that in kind? Yeah, I would note that throughout the history of the earth, really a more normal uh, level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been about a thousand parts per million, not the 420 we see today. And it's gotten as high as 7,000 parts per million, and, and I believe in even higher. What Heather is equating is carbon dioxide levels with temperature. She believes that carbon dioxide is the control knob for temperatures. And yet, uh, if the carbon dioxide levels are not the control level, uh, control now for temperature, then it doesn't really matter too much what the carbon dioxide levels are. And carbon dioxide has not historically been the control now for temperature. It plays some role, a modest role in global temperatures, but the fact that carbon dioxide levels are so high, and yet, well, so high compared to uh, over the past few hundred or few thousand years, but temperatures are lower than they've been throughout most of human civilization, tells you that carbon dioxide is not the control knob for global temperatures. So I, I guess one question that I have, and uh, neither Badia nor I are, are scientists, so I'm kind of uh, extrapolating the the outer bounds of my uh, uh, expertise or lack thereof a little a little far here. I mean, carbon dioxide is obviously a a, a naturally recurring, um, uh, not not element, but naturally occurring compound. I mean, obviously, you know, in elementary school, you learn about photosynthesis and and all of that. So I, I guess my question to you, Heather, would be. Um, 
at what point did carbon dioxide become a problem? Just kind of thinking about this historically, just trying to kind of like map it out for the viewers. And, and, and why did it become a problem at a certain point? Right, absolutely. Carbon dioxide has always been in the atmosphere. And if we didn't have a layer of greenhouse gases uh, around our planet, we wouldn't be talking today. It's an incredibly important part of our planet that we have had this warming layer. Um, when it becomes a problem is when that climate that we have adapted to and developed in um, becomes unstable and in particular changes at a pace that is really impossible uh, to adapt to or uh, in the case of of you know, ecosystems to evolve and adapt to. Um, but I think what's really critical here is to realize, you know, when we're, we're trading these numbers back and forth, um, it, you can cherry pick specific statistics to support an argument. You can, um, you know, take, take this tit for tat. Um, but really there is an immense body of science. There is no scientific debate at this point um, about the fact that, uh, the buildup of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere is causing dangerous climate change. Um, and you have to really stop and, and I think ask a, a deeper question, which is not um, what does the science say, but what would drive some people to deny an overwhelming body of science that tells us we are headed in a really dangerous direction. And actually we have a whole body of science that has begun answering that question in the past several years. And the answers are varied. Um, but it, it ranges from um, concern about the actual impacts, that the, the actual impacts of climate change, if we confront that, are, are just too scary and overwhelming, um, to uh, pressure to conform to a given group identity and, and adopt those views. Um, but in general, what all of these motivations have in common is the fact that when information conflicts with a deeply held worldview or deeply held uh, values and beliefs, then we, as a, a human species, uh, this is an, an evolved kind of response, psychological response, we will often reject that information. Um, but you've heard uh, James using words like, I believe. Um, this isn't a matter of belief. We well, have the evidence that climate is changing. No. No, and you're it, taking my words out of context. You're cherry picking my words. Go ahead, James. I, say I believe regarding the science. I said, I believe humans may be playing some role in that warming. Uh, and if you say that, you know, for sure, I, I think that you're really taking a leap of logic. But as you mentioned before, let's talk about the overwhelming scientific, you know, the scientists and, and what they say. As I mentioned earlier, more than 30,000 scientists have signed on to a summary of the science saying that there is no global warming crisis. Just as importantly, the American Meteorological Society is the only scientific body in the world whose full membership has been polled extensively on this issue. And when the questions are asked, is the world warming? Are humans playing a role? Yes, a large majority say yes. But the key question is, when they are asked, how concerned are you? Only 30 some percent say, are, say they are very concerned. Now, uh, I, I especially like your point though about how you have to look at evidence rather than worldview. So when we look at when, uh, when Heather says that temperatures are changing and rising too fast, uh, for society and for ecosystems to cope, then we should take a look at the actual evidence. So what we know for a fact, NASA satellites have measured a substantial greening of the Earth. The Earth is becoming greener, there's more vegetation, and NASA scientists not only have measured that greening, but they've also stated very definitively that's due to more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So the Earth's ecosystems are benefiting here. We also see that in crop production. We see that virtually every single year, global crop records are being shattered. 
So the notion that temperature is changing too fast, and that's the real problem, well, look at the data, look at the facts, and we say just the opposite. So, Heather, I, I, I have to say, I, I, I have no doubt that the overwhelming majority of scientists agree that this is a major problem. Um, but folks like me, I think, tend to bristle when we hear, like, this is beyond debate, trust the science, and so forth. We obviously heard a lot of trust the science rhetoric during COVID uh, with, this, with the CDC and all of that. But I guess more generally, two things. One is, um, you know, not not to be pedantic, but I mean, like global cooling obviously was was alleged to be a major issue around the the 1970s or so. Right. And what's more than that, it seems kind of just baked into the entire purpose of science as a discipline into the scientific method itself to continually test hypotheses um, and then kind of revise them. It's it's literally the purpose of science. So the, the, the notion that you know, that science is beyond any kind of possible correction, just seems kind of antithetical to the entire discipline. So why is this different? And if not, how do you reconcile that with just trust the science? No, absolutely. Um, I, I would never say that we should trust something blindly. That is indeed the point of science is that we test and uh, we confirm or debunk ideas that are put forward. And yes, understanding changes. Absolutely. That is a hallmark of science and should be. Um, what we should trust in is that process because it is the best process that we have for getting us to solid evidence information that we need to be able to respond to crises and i think it's important even when you know james says things like 30,000 scientists signed on to this letter or there's some degree of debate among scientists i mean if we uh use the analogy of of doctors right if you have a heart problem do you poll all doctors do you poll foot doctors no you go to a cardiologist if you have a heart problem. When we talk to climate scientists and talk about climate scientists, there is no question that human beings are causing dangerous climate change. This uh, conclusion has been come to over and over in large consensus reports, in individual studies. There's really no debate about that. Does that mean we know every single thing about climate change? Absolutely not. And nobody's claiming that. In fact, if there were, um, I wouldn't be working at a climate science research institution where <laughs> we see really critical questions that need to be answered in order to inform our response to this emergency. So no, we don't know everything. We're not saying that, but we certainly know enough to know that we are in the midst of an emergency and that we need to act urgently and dramatically to respond to it. Okay, well, we're off to a great start here. Let's take a quick break. Uh, this is Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. We'll be right back with James Taylor and Heather Goldstein. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Our guests are James Taylor and Heather Goldstone, and we're talking about whether global warming is an emergency. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the economics of this question, specifically with regards to poverty, global poverty, 
class in America, because it seems to me that both of you have a sort of argument to be made on this front. You know, Heather, from, from, from your point of view, that global warming is an emergency. You can really see sort of disenfranchised communities, poor communities, destitute communities around the globe and around the country whose lives are changing and are impacted by change in weather, change in climate um, in extreme ways that seem to be getting worse. But James, you've also argued, I think compellingly, that, I mean, you've called Biden's climate platform a jobs killer. And I think that there really is a way in which the way that environmentalism is often played out in America, it does seem to come at the expense of often working class jobs. So I want to give you each a, an opportunity to sort of um, present your position on this sort of aspect of the question and then to get into conversation with each other. So Heather, why don't you start? Absolutely. Um, and I will say that I, this has... Um, it's really a false dichotomy that has been around for a long time that we have to choose between a healthy environment and a healthy economy. When in actual fact, what the science tells us is that a healthy environment is the underpinning of a healthy economy. And at Woodwell Climate Research Center, we've actually been working with McKinsey and Company for the past few years. So you don't have to just take my word for it. Go to McKinsey and Company, their website, and look at what they've been saying about climate change. And in fact, what our work is showing is that climate change is material. It poses material risks to economic prosperity, as well as to people's lives, particularly in vulnerable communities, as you were mentioning. And that, in fact, investments in green uh, energy, in uh, renewable energy in the kinds of changes that we need to make to meet the challenge of climate change, they actually earn back more than you invest in them. So McKinsey and company has actually laid out a five kind of five step, five major transformations that we need to see moving forward in order to meet climate goals and also to ensure economic prosperity. James? All right. Well, Heather makes a great point that economic prosperity and environmental stewardship can go hand in hand. Uh, first of all, regarding the environment, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we know for a fact that the Earth is greening. NASA satellites have measured it. More carbon dioxide is more plant life. We also know for a fact that crop production is setting records nearly every year on a global basis and in most countries. At the same time, according to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, they have very low confidence in any negative observed impacts between global warming and hurricanes, global warming and tornadoes, global warming and droughts, global warming and floods. NASA satellites have measured a decline in global wildfires. So we see beneficial uh, impacts from more atmospheric carbon dioxide and warmer temperatures. Regarding the economics, it is very important, especially for the world's poorest people, that they have affordable and abundant energy. That's the lifeblood of any economy. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why in virtually every country in the world where you see new energy projects being built and being implemented, those projects are going to be coal and natural gas primarily. It's one thing to come up with a study that says this will be the case or that'll be the case, but I don't think that the leaders in virtually every country in the world uh, lack intelligence. I don't think they're stupid. There's a reason why that coal and natural gas dominate energy production. And if and when the day comes that wind power, solar power can compete with coal and natural gas, believe me, I'll be the first one cheering them on. So one thing that I always come back to when we talk about climate change and, and global warming 
is the collective action problem. You know, you learn about this kind of in law school, you learn about it in economics class and undergraduate and so forth. And what I mean by that is that um, granting the premise that this is a major problem, why should we, the United States, kind of uh, undermine, frankly, what, what is a, a, a remarkable, obviously, a fracking oil natural gas revolution over the past 15, 20 years or so, when China and India and countries like that in the developing world are obviously um, emitting, I don't have the exact percentages, but um, a, a plurality, a minimum, right, of, of global emissions. Um, so I, I would just be curious for your, for your thoughts on that. And uh, James, let's start with you. Okay, great question. Yeah, and it's important to note that China emits 30% of the world's emissions, the United States emits 14%. Since the turn of the century, the United States has reduced our emissions by 14%, whereas the rest of the world has increased its carbon dioxide emissions by 66%. It always it just makes me wonder why it is that people say the United States needs to take this action to get in line with the rest of the world, that the United States is maverick or is undermining uh, some global action, when the rest of the world should be beating a path to our door saying, hey, how do we do this? We're doing it through the free market. We're doing it through technology. We're doing it through natural gas that through economic factors is replacing coal power. Huh. So there have been a number of things that uh, James has said in his past couple of answers that, that I would take issue with. Um, but I think when it comes to the issue of, of responsibility of the United States to do something about climate change, first of all, whether or not our emissions have gone slightly up or slightly down, whether or not uh, we're emitting as much as China is really missing the point. We are the second greatest greenhouse gas emitter on the planet, both in absolute terms and in per capita terms. Uh, we have been a large part of causing this problem and we are all going to have to respond to this um, if we are going to meet this challenge. We can't simply put it onto someone else. Um, we're all going to have to, to do our part and that part varies based on uh, the resources available to uh, a given nation to actually make that response. So again, we're back to a place where I, I feel like we're, we're talking past each other, throwing numbers at each other, when in fact the deeper question is um, why we would deny this problem and work against climate action when in fact what that does is just make the problem worse for everyone, especially for the most vulnerable, but really in the long term for everyone. I just want to follow up there real quick, actually. Um, and I agree, obviously, that um, climate change t does disproportionately probably have an impact on the vulnerable. Obviously, with, no one wants dirty water or dirty air, especially kind of in, de in developing countries. But, you know, James's point is also sound, obviously, that, um, you know, increased energy, uh, basic supply, demand, economic chalkboard will kind of, you know, get reduced prices on those bread and butter, heating the home energy issues. So, uh, I, I mean, shouldn't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but shouldn't kind of the we're framing this as is, is it an emergency so shouldn't kind of the pro-emergency standpoint be you know united nations um should basically just issue like a global mandate to curtail emissions isn't that shouldn't that kind of be the default stance well and in fact a u.n response is something that we have been working toward a united global response is something we've been working toward for decades obviously it's very difficult um to get 200 countries into line and to all agree on exactly what that response should be um, but absolutely, we're all going to need to work on it. In terms of the, the question of cost, though, right, we, we can talk about market um, 
forces and uh, market-based solutions, but there's a fundamental problem in our economic system, which is that we are not accounting um, for the impacts of carbon on our climate. Um, and economists have been saying for decades uh, that if we were to put a price on carbon, then the market forces would actually drive us in the direction that we need to go. We haven't done that. And so we are at a place where uh, the kinds of changes that James has re uh, has referenced in terms of the U.S.'s emissions, um, you know, they're, they're almost a drop in the bucket compared to what we actually need to do to get the entire globe to net zero emissions before mid-century. Well, as and, and those are good points, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, we don't see these negative consequences to put a big negative cost on uh, carbon dioxide emissions. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change itself, and more importantly, the scientific data show that there has been no negative impact from global warming and hurricanes or tornadoes or droughts or floods or wildfires. We also know, as a matter of fact, that temperatures have been warmer for most of human history. So to say, to, to take it as a given that we are facing a climate crisis and we need to do something, you need to present data, you need to present facts, not just predictions. But again, if we were going to go that route, keeping in mind, the United States has far and away the, the world's largest economy with the most gro uh, gross domestic product. And yet China's emissions are more than twice ours. If we had eliminated our emissions, I mean, completely eliminated them at the turn of the century, still global emissions would be rising. Now, as it is, we've been reducing our emissions and we will continue to do so. But if there's going to be some form of climate action, I don't believe that we should force other nations to do so because we're not facing a climate crisis. But again, the focus should be on Let's make sure that we are not hamstringing American consumers and American businesses by self-inflicted economic wounds in the name of global warming when China and the rest of the world don't care and don't act. I mean, the idea that we have not seen impacts of climate change and dramatically negative impacts of climate change to date is quite frankly, just patently false. And Read the United I, I Nations reports. That's what they say. And, and in the past month, we have seen more than 500 deaths due to climate change fueled extreme weather uh, events from Which are flooding fewer in than Germany, has been the case historically. They are more extreme and made more extreme and more deadly by climate change. So again, we're in this position where we could, we could debate consensus. this back and forth all day and not get anywhere. Um, and, and the larger issue really is why, what drives the uh, the motivation for denying this problem, because when we deny the problem, um, that is what hamstrings us. We cannot effectively respond to a problem that we don't even acknowledge. Um, and so we can't hope to actually get anywhere. And in doing so, we abdicate uh, a responsibility and a power really to save lives. But you need to show the problem. And not only the data, most importantly, the data, but the United Nations reports themselves say that they have found no negative impacts, hurricanes, droughts, floods, tornadoes, wildfires. So you need to show that. You can't just say that there's a problem we need to act and say you're denying it if you haven't presented it. You know, we, we don't even need to go to UN reports um, to see the impacts of climate change, the negative impacts of climate change. They have been really slapping us in the face um, over the past few years. Burned area in the American West last year um, broke all-time records more than doubled all-time records, and we are again off to 
uh, a horrible start with fires in the West with an earlier start than usual, both um, directly uh, linked back to climate change and climate related processes. Uh, we have seen increased droughts and floods right here in the United States related to climate change, and we are seeing deaths that we can attribute to climate change. So to say that there has been no negative impact is just patently false. Let's take a quick break. Uh, this is Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. We'll be right back with James Taylor and Heather Goldstein. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Our guests are James Taylor and Heather Goldstone, and we're talking about climate change. So, Heather, I want to ask you something, because you're also at some level making a cost benefit analysis, right? Like if we all gave up our cars and we all stopped using electricity and air conditioning and stopped flying places, we would solve the problem much quicker. But you're not advocating for that, right? So so you're also making um, a cost benefit analysis. You're just putting the place where the sacrifice should happen at a different place, it seems to me, than James's. I'm wondering if you can talk us through that. Like, how do you know what to ask people to give up in the face of this emergency and what we don't ask people to give up? Well, quite frankly, I think we need to be acting as urgently as possible. We need to be doing um, realistically more than is even being stated in some of the um, international goals really to ensure a safe and stable climate going forward. Um, I guess where I draw the line is to say that we need to do as much as we can to save as many lives as possible, um, as opposed to getting into this gray zone of how many lives is okay, how many livelihoods is okay. We need to do all we can to save as many lives and livelihoods as possible. So should we all stop using air conditioning? Should we stop flying to see relatives? Like, would you like, do you recommend those things given this emergency that you're describing? You know, I think um, people making their own choices to take personal action is incredibly important and can really actually be empowering. But I think to focus on that and to focus on this idea um, of sacrifice as the only way to deal with this is um, a problematic framing. We need systemic transformation. This is not just on the backs of individuals um, to solve this problem. If you have the means and can do those things, great. Um, but we need to be talking about systemic change in order to address um, a problem of this magnitude. Well, just a very quick follow up then. I mean, I'm curious, like precisely like, where we draw the line here. So like, um, it, you know, we see some um, people, um, I would call them alarmists, frankly, um, who say like, stop having children, right? It's kind of this like, it's, it's Thomas Malthus. It's the, it's, it's, it's Malthusian rhetoric, it's Malthusian demography. Um, is, is that taking it too far or, I, or is that like, um, is that okay? I, I'm not going to dictate anybody's family choices for sure. I think everybody needs to um, understand what is at stake in the decisions that we make in our everyday lives and make decisions that align with their values. And that's a real opportunity that I see in climate change because I don't think anybody's core values, if, if they are asked, are destroying um, ecosystems, ruining lives, causing more deaths and making our planet unlivable. 
that's nobody's core values, right? And so if we think about what are your core values and how can you live in a way that's more aligned with them, um, I think there are a lot of answers there. And so I think one thing that we need to do is get a lot clearer about what it is that we're working toward. We're not working to try to take away people's comforts, take away people's quality of life. We're actually working to ensure quality of life for more people going forward. We're working to ensure a safe and stable climate that will underpin economic prosperity going forward. Um, and so we need to be much clearer about what those goals are and what uh, the, the positive outcomes of this, uh, of, of actually addressing climate change would be. James? Well, I, I would say that it's important to note that Heather, again, is assuming this climate crisis. She keeps using the word problem, et cetera. Uh, earlier, she mentioned cherry picking data. Before the break, however, she mentioned wildfires and droughts. Heather said that we're having wildfires in the American West uh, that are uh, quite strong and severe. But we know from NASA satellite data globally from NASA, so that's not cherry picking, since the turn of the century, wildfires globally have burned 24% less land than was the case before. Wildfires are decreasing. Drought in the United States, we know for a fact that twice in the past five years, the whole United States, not a Larry in the West, and of course that is important to keep track of, but for the entire United States twice in the past five years, we have set records, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, for the least amount of the United States experiencing drought. Plus, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration notes that over the past 40 years, we have not had more than 40% of the United States at a given time experiencing very dry conditions. Yet before that time period, it was quite frequent throughout the early, mid 20th century that that would be the case. So when you're looking at not cherry-picked local data like in the American Southwest or whatever that Heather noted, but when you look at the United States as a whole and globally, again, the underlying justification for all of these restrictions on our economy and our human freedom just simply does not pan out. While climate change is a global process, um, that way of, of kind of papering over the entire continent has not experienced drought, the entire continent has not experienced um, extreme rainfall, it is really a misunderstanding of how climate change and weather works. Climate change enhances extremes on both ends of the spectrum, but not necessarily in the same place. And so you have to look at weather extremes on the scales that they actually happen. And when you do that, you do see that we have seen more extreme droughts, that we have seen increases in extreme precipitation in some not regions. Not according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's own data. I mean, it's simply not the case. There always have been droughts. There always have been wildfires. What you have to do is look at the planet as a whole and the global trends. And according to the, to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's own data, those trends in the United States and globally are not getting any worse. And in fact, they're getting less frequent and less severe. That's the overall data. Yeah, and that's just not uh, the data or the interpretation um, that that I have seen, right? We, we look at the data in a way that um, is appropriate to the scales at which the processes happen. And we see, yes, some regions get drier and some regions get wetter. And if you were to average those all together, you might see no change. But that's not actually what's happening on the ground. As one climate scientist said to me at one point, nobody lives a global average, right? We live our local weather. Weather happens at a certain scale. And when we have to look at that scale to understand what's actually happening. But overall, if there's less frequent drought and less severe drought, that overall is a net benefit. You can't say there's a global warming crisis when as a whole, we are experiencing fewer of these extremes. And by the way, uh, you can go to climaterealism.com or climateataglance.com 
and the Heartland Institute, and I have documented and presented this data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's right there. So this is such an interesting scientific debate about how to interpret data, which is probably a little bit over my head and a little bit over a lot of the listeners' heads. So I'm going to bring it back to, to something a little bit more basic, which is, James, do, are there environmental policies that you support? For example, fighting deforestation or something, you know, very, that seems like very obviously good and, and, and sort of, you know, doesn't cost any jobs. You know, what, where do you see, do you see anything going on in the climate activism realm that you actually feel like, oh, yeah, you know what, that's actually good. I'm glad they're doing that. Well, that's a great question. And I do, I love open spaces. I love getting out in nature. I, it pains me to see forests burn down. And it's one of the reasons why it also pains me that climate change has taken the place of other more legitimate environmental issues and the prescribed solutions for global warming. For example, windmills. Scientists at Harvard University recently published a peer-reviewed study. They believe in a climate crisis. And they asked, how much of the country will we have to cover with wind turbines to replace conventional energy? Mm -hmm. And what they found is we would have to cover one third of the American landmass with wind turbines to replace conventional energy. And if we electrify transportation, as many folks advocate, we would have to cover one half of the American landmass. I cannot think of a worse environmental catastrophe than developing half of America's landmass, taking away our open spaces, our forests, our prairies, our plains, and placing wind turbines or solar panels on them. You know, this is, it's really interesting um, to hear James, the way he's, he's framing um, these environmental issues, because I think we frequently hear arguments that the things that we need to do to address climate change are in some way um, out of line with, in particular, conservative values. When, in fact, um, if you look at the impacts of not acting on climate change versus actually doing what's needed um, to address climate change, you see that climate action would itself be um, very aligned, could be very aligned with conservative values. And uh, take this not from me, but um, I have spoken with others like Mitch, Hes Mitch Hescox, who leads the uh, Evangelical Environmental Network, um, we work with uh, the Niskanen Center, working out or, or thinking about what are uh, you know policies and approaches that could work. And what we find is that climate change itself is actually the greatest threat to social, political, economic stability. It is a huge threat to those ecosystems and those forests um, that James would like to get out into. Um, and, and so not acting actually is a huge threat here and is a far greater threat um, than that posed by asking. Now, if you wanna get into a debate about what exactly is the right mix of energy sources and how do we meet that demand and what new technologies do we need to meet those energy demands, great. That could be a worthwhile debate, right? To actually think about what is the best path forward to address this. But as long as we are denying that there is a problem, we are hamstringing ourselves and preventing ourselves from actually getting to a useful debate about how to, to move forward. And instead, you know, just having this um, really unproductive exchange of, of um, conflicting numbers. Well, Heather mentions, she says that climate change is uh, destroying forests, reducing their numbers and health. And yet we know for a fact by NASA satellites that there has been a substantial greening of the earth that there has been more vegetation, more tree growth, et cetera. Carbon dioxide, there's a reason why 
that uh, horticulturists pump it into greenhouses. We can see the objective data, the earth is getting greener. That's why crops are doing so much better. More atmospheric carbon dioxide is beneficial to plant life throughout the earth. It's not causing forest harm, it's helping forests. We know that for a fact, we measure it with NASA satellites. And if carbon uh, dioxide were the only thing that influenced tree health, that argument might hold up. But it's also water, it's also soil health, it's also temperature. And we know from our work that in fact, uh, we are seeing forests being degraded, that as temperature rises, the biology shifts and the flow of water shifts, and we are actually seeing the degradation of forests. So it's more complicated than just carbon dioxide. And to focus only on that um, really obfuscates what we're actually seeing, which, which is a serious threat to ecosystems. According to NASA itself, 70% of the greening effect of the earth that they have measured is due to more atmospheric carbon dioxide. That's NASA. That's satellite data. So I hate to hop in and disrupt this uh, wonderful flow we have going on here, but we're, we are getting towards the end of our podcast. I think Bonnie and I have one question each. Um, I have a question, or my final question, I guess, that's kind of more in my wheelhouse, which is kind of uh, politics and kind of the the art of politics and statesmanship in general. Um, I, like I kind of teased earlier, I cringe when I hear like trust the science as some sort of like purported kind of guide to public policy. Um Scientists don't dictate public policy the same way that economists don't dictate public policy. If we had economists do public policy, everything would be a cost benefit analysis. We would probably have like total free trade, open borders and so forth. If we had like a, you know, if we if we had disease specialist doctors, we would all be wearing gloves and masks 24 seven, even without a pandemic. So similarly, it doesn't make sense um, necessarily to have kind of uh, climate scientists dictate um, everything. Right. Um, inherently kind of politics is a balancing act. That's what the preamble of the Constitution teaches us more perfect union, established justice, general welfare, all, all of those things. So having said that, um, I would be curious for your kind of overall kind of more philosophical thoughts on the proper role of science in dictating public policy in general. We could start with you, Heather. Yeah, well, first of all, um, we've unfortunately reached a point with climate change that you don't have to just trust the science. You can trust your own eyes and your own experience. You can watch what's going on around you and see the impacts of climate change. There's probably no one in the United States at this point who hasn't seen the impacts of climate change in their own lives. So we are at a point where we definitely need to act. Now, does trust the science mean scientists should dictate policy? Absolutely not. But it is knowledge, and that knowledge is power, and it should inform our policies. So understanding what we're up against, what the paths forward could be, what would be a more effective um, strategy, you know, A versus B, which one would we take, what would the trade-offs be involved in that? Those are the kinds of questions uh, that science can answer that can underpin policy. And so it needs to be a critical part of informing policy. But you're right, not dictating it. Okay. James? Well, I agree. We should trust uh, what we see, what we observe in the real world. Uh, I just recently drove from Chicago to Salt Lake City. I'm here in Salt Lake City right now uh, for this podcast. And what I saw driving across Nebraska and South Dakota is an area where crop production sets new records each and every year, due in large part to more atmospheric carbon dioxide and more beneficial uh, weather conditions. I drove through Montana and Wyoming and Idaho through forests that NASA satellites have measured have become much more dense, much more lush, much healthier, much greener as a result, primarily due to carbon dioxide emissions. So I agree with that. We should be looking with our own eyes and uh, making observations and we can see what we see. And that is we are experiencing a better world with warmer temperatures and more atmospheric carbon dioxide. 
All right. Last question for you both. And thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I'm wondering what is something that you could learn tomorrow that would change your mind about this topic that would make you question the position that you have? What is a piece of data that if you heard it, you would be like, wow, it's possible that I'm wrong about this. Uh, James, let's start with you. Yes, great question. It's a question I ask myself because I don't think that I'm infallible. I don't think anybody's infallible. So I always want to be questioning and challenging my beliefs. And for me, it would be either of two things, maybe in conjunction, but either of two things. One, if temperatures were to rise much more rapidly than they have been, right now they've been rapidly much slower than United Nations computer models predicted. But if they were to rise much more rapidly, they could rise at our current pace for another century or two before we reach the temperatures that predominated throughout much of human civilization. The other thing would be is if we really did see this onslaught of negative weather consequences, this onslaught of droughts, hurricanes, tornadoes, et cetera, well then again, I mean, I, I'm a human being, I have children, I, I love people, I don't wanna see a climate catastrophe, but I also wanna make sure that we're not deluding ourselves because it's natural for humans to fear things and to worry about things, but I wanna make sure that we have the best possible conditions for human health and welfare and for the environment. Heather? I honestly can't tell you what that piece of data were, but I um, would so welcome it because I can tell you quite honestly that I and every climate scientist I know would like nothing more than to be wrong about where we are with regard to climate change and the threats that it poses. Um, It is a a terrifying prospect. Um, And that is what motivates uh, the work that we do to understand the problem, to try to raise awareness about it and motivate policy um, to to change the situation we're in and the trajectory that we are on. And I think that's the other thing to note is that um, if that piece of evidence were one that showed uh, climate change is still happening, but it's not caused by humans, I would be crushed quite frankly, because that would mean there's nothing we can do about it. It is in the fact that humans are causing the problem that I actually find hope because if we're causing the problem, we can stop the problem. Wow, what a great place to end. Uh, James, Heather, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so James and Heather have left the proverbial building. Um, Badia, what do you make of that exchange? Oh, it was so great. It was so civil, but it was very vigorous. They argued about a lot of things, but also agreed about a lot of things. It was just like a really good encapsulation, I thought, of the two positions on this issue. What did you think? Yeah, it was great. I I thought they both argued powerfully, persuasively. Um, We didn't really have to do a whole lot of moderating, honestly, which was was kind of interesting. They kind of moderate, they kind of self-moderated to very clearly erudite and and, and informed people. Um, Personally, I just always come back to the collective action problem. Um, I kind of wish the alarmist emergency side of this debate would just be honest and say that they want to impose global mandates, whether that's coming from the UN or elsewhere. Um, Otherwise, I I just quite frankly, personally, don't really see the point of any of this. But um, no, look, I give Heather a lot of credit. She was um, extremely well-spoken and she certainly knew her stuff, um, as as did James, of course. Yeah, just another fabulous debate. And with that fabulous debate now in the books... We will see you next week. So just a reminder to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Art19, wherever you get your podcast. This is the Debate and Newsweek podcast. We will see you next time. See you next time.
Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.